Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's 100th episode, we are joined by Gavin Friday. Gavin, born and bred in Dublin, is a singer, songwriter, composer, actor and painter, and an all-round Irish legend. Best known as a founding member of the Virgin Prunes, who are one of Ireland's most ambitious post-punk groups. Gavin left the Prunes in 1986, going on to record several solo albums and soundtracks. He collaborated with Bono to write three tracks for the Jim Sheridan movie, In the Name of the Father, two of which were Bono Friday vocal duets, with Sinead O'Connor singing the third. He contributed the song Angel to one of the biggest selling soundtracks of all time, Romeo and Juliet, as well as a full score for the movies The Boxer, Angel Baby in America and Get Rich or Die Trying. Gavin still puts the same energy into his work that he did when he started the Virgin Prunes in 1977, whether recording his own albums or composing music. His work is always inspiring and thought-provoking, and we were absolutely delighted to get to chat to him. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Gavin Friday. Friday. Welcome to Let Chrissy Take It. We're delighted to have you. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. Gavin, born and bred in Dublin. Can you tell yeah. us what it was like to be a teenager in 70s Dublin? Uh, complicated. Uh, tough. I mean, uh, Dublin in this... Uh, I was born like the end of 59, like October 59. So I was from 1960 on up to... T- I turned 10 in 1970. And that's sort of like when life really changed for me because I sort of got into music when I was 10. Uh, bought me for a single and all of that. T-Rex it was. But, I, I mean, it, it was a, it's a black and white world. It was a very repressed, very simple country. Uh, I mean, I don't like saying heavy things like it was almost like third world. It wasn't that bad, but it was pretty bad. Uh Unemployment was massive, like, uh, and it was quite violent. There was like a lot of street gangs in them days. Now you get violence in in patches around the city centre and in certain areas. But like, I, I grew up on Cedarwood Road and Oakwood Road. were always bashing the shit out of Cedarwood, and Sycamore were bashing the shit out of Oakwood. Like even what road you came from was even a territory, uh, and. I was, believe it or not, a, quite a shy uh, boy when I was young. Uh, strict, strict but liberal parents. Strict on me, my dad was, but uh, I had religious upbringing all the way. Nuns and then brothers, Christian brothers in secondary school. And um, really w- was a bit of a loner, even though I had three brothers, until I met two other fellows on the same road one called Googie and one called Bono uh, Paul Hewson and Derek Road who lived at the other end I lived in the cul-de-sac of Cedarwood Road and they lived up the top which was the Protestant end and we lived down the Catholic end believe it or not and it was really true you know it was I said I bought my first record when I was 10 and it was music that really sort of saved my life or made my life and just suddenly there was something that I was into and and that's how they contacted me was they saw me walking down the road holding Bowie albums and started talking to me so so when you say you know music became all encompassing mm -hmm. like for teenagers I don't think teenagers get the you're saying walking down the street with the with the album in your hand Teenagers these days don't will never get that, you know, that tangible aspect of owning or waiting to get music and bringing the music home, unwrapping it, you know, uh, 
for it to be part of your core, you know? I mean, music was a, not a, a mass thing back then. Uh, like, singles sold more than anything. Like, a single in 1971 or two could sell two or three million, where an album would sell about 50,000. It, was, it wasn't that big uh, a, a thing. And also... You know, there'd be two or three record shops on the north side. There'd be one in Finglas, one in Fibsborough, and then you have to go to, and they were all golden discs usually, uh, and 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 they were expensive even because money was short. Like it was fifty p, I think, for a single, and two seventy five or three quid for an album. Uh, I believe it was when uh, Live Aid happened that music went widescreen and multicultural all over the world. But it's hard to describe because there was no internet, there was no mobile phones, there was no phones. Yeah. I mean, that's how I met Googie and Bono, because there was a phone booth outside Googie's house on Seabird Road. So if you want to make a phone call, you'd walk down to make a phone booth, you should get your head kicked in on the way. And I'd be standing there to make a phone call and carrying an album. It was almost a badge of honor. Uh, there was a lot of what we called in them days. I was like, I was always into clothes and being rebellious. It was like music gave me that. Mark Boland first, and then Bowie and Roxy Music. And like, I mean, I pierced my ear, ears when I was 12, which was basically putting a sign on your head, kick me head in, because back then having earrings was a big thing. Mm. Uh, and it was your badge of honor, like going. I'm not into fucking shawadi wadi or your boot boy, boot boy music. I'm not into football. I'm not into Gaelic. I'm into Bowie, and this is when Bowie was really an outsider that became the big legend. Eventually, it was like so. Uh, it just gave me. It, it sort of opened up me door of dreams in a weird way, because the school then. You were being educated to to be like, you go to the bank or you become, you get a trade or the civil service or you're on the dole or you emigrate. That was that was literally what they were educating you towards. I was never even, it never even occurred that you could go to third level education or study art or anything else. And I was just going, get me out of here. Everything around, I couldn't relate to you know, the general laddish things that were going on. And then I got music and it sort of just opened up another door where I could go, I want to go where they go. But I felt because you're so young and naive that these, these artists like David Bowie and, and Roxy music, they were like beyond, uh, beyond stars. They were like, you'd have to go to some university in heaven to understand that. But it was when punk rock opened its door in 1976. Punk rock said, no, all you need is make up, make up your own music, make up your own clothes, cut your hair, dye your hair, do what you want, DIY, do it yourself. And that's when I, I really went with it. Is that making sense? Yeah. yeah. Gavin, take it back just a small bit. Yourself, Googie Bono. We're collectively known as Lipton Village. Where did the name come from? It, it, it's it's a quite an eclectic name for a group of lads in in seventies Dublin or maybe even late sixties Dublin. Yeah, it was Lipton Village sort of happened around 73, 74. and it started off basically, you know, the way people give each other nicknames when you're a kid, and. We we had this rule. We used to rule. You can't pick your own nickname. Everyone else gives you a name. <laughs> so I had no choice. I was given Gavin Friday. Uh, it usually was about your personality or how you looked. Um, there was a. I was called Wavin, believe it or not, because I had this quite aggressive square head when I was younger. And there used to be a sewerage pipe called Wavin Pipe. It used to come up like Wavin, and this <laughs> pipe would bash into the telly screen. And I was, they were calling me Wavin, you're full on like like that ad of Wavin. And then they went, I ah, know you're gentler, Gavin. And Friday came from, it was Googie gave me Gavin Wavin. 
Bono gave me Friday because because of like the Robinson Crusoe Man Friday because I had a tendency of getting on with most people. I was like everyone's friend, uh, and the names were given like Googie because of his his lower lip and how he used to talk. He used to like a uh, and just silly things. We were like, quite inspired by comedians the way. Kids in the uh, in the last ten years would have been inspired by the surrealism of the mighty Bush. Yeah. Like our our era was inspired by Monty Python. Yeah. That was like the living mighty Bush in the early seventies. So we were looking at this on BBC, and that's surrealism and humor and taking the piss, but also really hitting hard politically or fun. So all of that and these names and these ideas started happening and i think i think it was someone else it wasn't it was like it wasn't just me googie and bono there was uh about nine of us or ten of us all together edge ended up joining there was most of the virgin prunes strongman david another guy called nigel watson davy's brother and i think it was somebody just said uh, you're like a village and, and it says yeah what's the name of the village and someone just said Lipton Village. For all I know, it could have been a Lipton tea ad on the telly. <laughs> and the fact that you have this nudge, nudge, wink, wink, lad, humor, surreal, like the way the mighty Bush, Bush, excuse me, have that sort of, it's mad, but they understand it. That sort of private language that's so important to young teenagers. And that's what really just happened. And out of that, when punk happened, it affected us so much that we felt, let's form bands. Mm -hmm. so, so that's where, um, and because both bands ended up going down areas of international recognition, I would actually say a lot of Lipton Village has been, you know, blown up and mystified, as anything is. Yeah. But we were just young fellas making it up as we went along with us tonight who are certainly young people they're a young group who hail mainly from dublin and they are unique and different there is no other group in the business doing what they're doing at the moment what exactly they're doing i'm not too sure mind you but there's nobody else doing it and you have to make up your own mind would you welcome please the virgin prunes can i ask you uh the virgin prunes formed in uh 77 the catholic church still had its heel fairly in the throat of the country was this your kind of outlet? It, 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 yeah. I mean, not as directly when you're 17, when we formed the band. But yeah, I mean, I was at this stage when punk kicked in. Uh, I, I was quite like advanced in that. I was told at 10, if you want a record player, go out and fucking buy it. Get a part-time job. Me dad was I remember one of my favorite sayings my dad says, I don't like music at all. And I says, Dad, even plants like music. There's something fucking wrong with you. <laughs> and that scientific plants actually relate to music. And uh, he was just one of these black and white, old school, Fianna Fáil, uh, pretended he was Oskelga. Uh, like my real name is Fanon, there's Rebord, Podrick and Crowher. But he hadn't a fucking word of Irish. It was just that old school republicanism that we all grew up in and cultural nationalism yeah 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 and, and there's good and bad to that by the way yeah uh, but uh i had to go out and work and and, and and pay for everything but i i went over to england in 1976 on my own to see bowie live slept in a tube station slept, slept in victoria station but i was buying clothes in the king's road and i was quite I was quite full force and quite like uh, eccentric looking for normal Dublin kids. So I was getting the head battered out of me from the age of 16, anywhere I'd go. And the Virgin Prunes and my clothes almost became this banner and this righteousness. And like the Christian brothers, I, th I, don't, I can't remember. After four or five times of being expelled, it was like... My man was just going, Jesus Christ, what were we going to do with you? You know, but I was anti everything at that stage. You, you didn't realize. I remember 
I'm not being that articulate here, but I remember I, I started hanging out with a lot more Protestants and people that went to Mount Temple, which was non-denominational. So they were Catholics and Protestants and whatever, or atheists. And I found everyone said, oh, the Protestants are this. They were like much more liberal. The, the Catholic Church was like, cut your hair, don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you can't have a, you can't be in a band, uh, you have to get a normal job. Where I found the Catholic, the, the restrictions were castrating, strangling, and really negative. But as the 80s kicked in, I really got more and more anti, anti-religion more than just pointing at the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. And like, do you feel that having the band like the Virgin Prunes allowed you to develop as a character? Like, if you hadn't, hadn't been in the band and you're coming back on your own from England with this gear, you're standing out, like, you could hang it on. This is who I am. This is my crew. Yeah. But it's even deeper than that. Because if you actually examine a lot of what the Virgin Prunes wrote about and were angry about, a lot of people thought we were very arty and pretentious and uh, go, yeah, fuck off. You know, yeah, that's easy to say. We didn't want to be in a normal band. We didn't want to look normal. We didn't want to fucking hit. Hello, you wanted to run off and be on top of the pops. We didn't. We just wanted to make this mad art and we were angry. But it gave me incredible freedom and to express myself, my sexuality, my frustration, to, to actually stand up to the bullies that were bullying me. So it really, I, I, I actually think I would have been a mess if I didn't have the Virgin Prunes. It, it was almost like an, a primal scream anger therapy thing. Yeah. You can get it all out of you through your music rather than going down the sad old road that a lot of young Dublin kids did then and still do now, which is drugs and, and fuck yourself up or run away to London and get fucked up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you enjoy being a frontman? Yeah, I have to say, uh, I think you're born a frontman. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why frontman wants so much attention. It's usually an element of insecurity. Uh, there, there's always ego, but I, I, I think uh, there's a saying I've always said: uh, a frontman's best secure, security is his or her insecurity. Um, you know, it, you're, you're trying to prove something desperately. Usually at a primitive, primal instinct, it's trying to even get your dad's approval, even though he's going against you. And it's a really, you know, I, I don't want to, you probably, have you done Jim Sheridan yet? Have you, uh, we've tried, we've tried. He's not biting. I, I get him, but he'll go into the whole primeval <laughs> mother-father thing. Yeah. Deep down, you usually we're all looking for approval or for fucking love. And, and some of us have to end up wearing dresses and screaming at the people to get this attention. But it really was my way, my way out of what I was seeing was this, this rat race that I didn't want to be a part of this sort of old repressed Ireland. Where do you think that comes from, Gavin? You have to be born with it. It has to be inside you. A punk? Just <laughs> being a rebel. Just, just. I mean, to come from the Ireland you came from, you were born before me, but like, I still remember being born in the early 70s and being quite conservative. I came from a background, my father was an atheist and he used to tell me from an early age, there's no such thing as God and, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. Oh. Quite, quite storming to a child. And now that he's quite sick. He's starting to, to speak to priests, you know, no atheists and foxholes, as they say. You probably wanted to go and make your Holy Communion. Like I know, when I made it, he was all right like that. He was, he was sensible enough, you know. Well, I, t I tell you why I do think it is born in me. Me dad, I, I, I've like three brothers. Uh, there's Rebord, Podrick and Connor. We're all basically about 
uh, 18 months between each other, which is sort of like nine months pregnancy, nine months keeping it, you know, 18 months. And when we were, when I was six and Robert is about four and a half or five, we were sent down to join the Cubs. And I said, I don't want to join the Cubs. You're joining the Cubs. We're in the Cubs, but we couldn't afford the hat or the toggle. Uh, and the uniform around. So you, me, ma and dad were saving up to get the hat and the toggle. And after about three months, we got the hat and toggle. And I turned up and the, the scoutmaster said, oh, I see young Hanvey has, has, they have their toggles and their hats. He says, you turn up without that toggle and hat, you're expelled. And I went, cling, cling, got home, went up to my bedroom, and me, ma caught me cutting up the toggle and the beret. And um, she says, oh, son, if you're that upset, you don't have to go. And um, the dad lost it. So I ended up not going to the boy cubs or the, or the scouts. But I went, I'm not fucking going. I'm cutting up the toggle. I don't want to go. So maybe even at a very young age that I want to be me. Don't tell me what to do. Stubbornism was probably in me DNA for some reason. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'd say you were you weren't an easy child, Gavin. I can say that. No, but I was actually a quiet child. But I was, I, I was quite determined, and I, I, yeah, I was very stubborn. Uh, yeah, yeah. There you go, Gavin. Googie and Dick Evans left the Virgin Prunes in '84, and you followed in '86 after recording of the Prunes' second studio album. Yeah. The moon looked down and laughed. Yeah. What prompted you to leave? For me, the Virgin Prunes were totally spontaneous, as in we we kept trying to reinvent the wheel. When you're 17, 18, 19, 20, and you're making your first albums, you actually think you're creating something that's never been done before. You're that naive. And there's something beautiful about the innocence and the, and the imagination and nothing. You're afraid of nothing. You don't think about money. You don't care. You just you don't care if you're going to blow everything on that recording or this or that. So we we lived this fearlessness. And as I said, we seriously didn't want to have hit singles. We wanted to express ourselves. And we lived like these wildfire expressionist performance art punk rockers and toured Europe. And basically, we just burnt the, the, the originality out. You can't keep reinventing. And we got a bit broken by it. And and then money happened. We no money. And the record industry was changing. And the band, like life, when you're 24, 25, girlfriends, people want to settle down, babies are coming in. There's all sorts of stuff. But it was like, it was like the band had run its course. I remember in early 84 playing a big festival and me and googie came off and i said every single one every single one of the front 10 rows look like gavin or googie i says we that isn't what we want we don't want clones we want people to be express themselves and it just was falling apart uh we made the album rough trade records who we signed to had dropped us they dropped everyone actually. Rough Drade dropped the Fall, Cabaret Voltaire, Echo, every Echo and the Bunnyman, everyone. And then they signed the Smiths. So they went to, and then they they started making. They they decided to go from an indie to to a pretend indie, really a major. And we were just lost, and the fire had gone. And away from that, I had in my travels around Europe had been very influenced or opened up to new music. But the new music was old music. It was music of Kurt Weill and Chanson and Jacques Brel and, and, and Charles Aznavour and all this new worlds because we toured an awful lot in France and Germany. And I was listening to this and I go, this is fucking more punk than Johnny Lydon. This is better. I want to learn more about music. So... The weird thing is, a moon looked down and laughed was almost a Virgin Prunes album. It was almost a Gavin Friday solo album morphing itself, if you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. 
the band just disintegrated. I stayed on a little bit longer to pay debts because that's what you do. And once that was done and dusted, I left. And it was horrible because it's like, it's like, you know, having a girlfriend or a boyfriend or aunt that you've had since you're 16. And then, you know, you're not, she's not the one and you have to say goodbye. And it fucking, it kills you. You mm. know, I even remember the day walking up to, I think it was Temple Lane rehearsal studios. And you're just shitting yourself walking up the stairs to say, I'm breaking it off. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and and it, it didn't go down well, uh, but it was the right thing because the essence had, had burnt out. The magic had gone. And, and, and our, our sort of free-form spontaneity had just blown up. And I sort of went, Is, isn't that a beautiful thing? Does that that's the light that shines twice as bright, burns half as long? And I think that's what the virtual prunes were. They were this liberation of expression from repressed Ireland and uh, like the repressed 60s and 70s. And we were the start of this fuck off. Yeah. And we did exactly what we wanted. Like, still, I've seen many, many gigs. And many, and I'm very, very excited about what's going on in Ireland at the moment with, with like the Fontaines, the murder capital, inhaler. And then I'm mad about this surreal folk stuff. Like Lancome are fucking mind blown. And it's such a great thing, but no one was intense or as fucking full on as what we did live. Gavin, how does that, how does that sit with you now? That impact that the prunes had. And still have on Irish music. Like your senior influence, the Fontaines DC, they're, they're, they're quite time aversion, but they're punkish at their car. Like your influence, how does that sit with you? I'm just so happy that I'm seeing angry young men, like the singer from the Murder Capital and the singer from the Fontaines. I'm just so happy. And they're out singing about what annoys them about being a gale and being a foot, whatever. And they're out there and they're not just kissing ass to have a hit single. Mm. I just think it's expression. It's about your country and how you feel about your life, about love, about hate, about whatever. I'm just, and if we in any way tipped that, I don't know. I think we're sort of, we're, I think we're almost like, the embarrassment of the Irish music. A lot of people won't really talk about it. Do you know what I mean? I believe. Uh, but I don't give a fuck because <laughs> the album we put out, we put out 40 years edition of uh, If I Die, I Die has sold better than any catalogue album uh, uh, that uh, BMG put out on retrospective bands in the last five years. He said, it's just really big in Holland, Belgium, Germany. God knows what it's sold here. But yeah, it's my hometown and I still live here. But I do feel like an outsider still, musically. I drink all day, I'm never sober Just to ease the pain These lies more than kill Gavin, after the, the Virgin Prunes broke up, you dedicated yourself a bit to your painting. At yeah. that period, were you just a little bit disillusioned with the music scene or did you just need a break? I was disillusioned. I was confused. And I started painting with Googie. And we painted and it was still, uh, we did an exhibition. But the thing was about a year or two into painting, I actually... The funniest thing that nobody knows is Gavin and Googie became vegetable men. Uh, we had, Googie had a van and, and we were still like wearing mad clothes and, and makeup and all that. And he had this little high ace red van and we used to go around selling vegetables in Tala. And you go up to the markets and sell them. And 
all the old ones, we'd do the daytime shifts. We were murdered if we were seen at night. And we fucking saw loads of veggies. <laughs> oh, there's the mad fellas. Come in. I have bananas and 10 stone a potato and this, whatever. And we just had a laugh. That was like, and then we'd paint at night. Uh, but it was, I'd say about two years later, and like we were broke. It was one of the only times I ever signed up on the dole. And Dennis Desmond's from MCD, uh, the big promoter here, he he bumped into me and he says, Jay's at the club down on, on the Keys, the waterfront. It's, uh, I think it's, it, it's now called, what ended up being called Columbia Mills. He says, I have a restaurant and a club, but no one will go to it. This is when no one went further than O'Connell, O'Connell yeah. Bridge. And he says, would you open a club? And uh, could you? And I says, well, if you pay me 150 quid and give me two dozen bottles of wine, because I had this idea that I'd get loads of musicians to come that were in bands, and how I'd get them to play was I can't pay them, but I'll give you two bottles of wine. <laughs> we had a thing called, I started a club called the Blue Jesus, uh, and it went from 10 o'clock every Friday night, four in the morning. It was two quid in, no guest lists, no VIPs. Uh, and I had a great philosophy. I think when you go out late at night and you go to hear a band, you, at 10 or 11, you have a few drinks on you, you actually don't really want to fucking hear a band. <laughs> you want to talk, but you want the vibe. So I had this thing, on every hour, there'd be 20 minutes of music, and then it would stop, and I would just have jazz or laid-back music, Sinatra. And there'd be 14 minutes of people chatting and drinking. And then the entertainment, you could hear a pin drop because then you could have the entertainment. Um, that was when I, I had to have performance back in me. So it was two years later. It was there I started experimenting with a guy called Morris Caesar. I wanted to work with somebody that knew more than three chords, that was classically trained, that could understand the world of Kurt Weill or Jack Brell or Charles Aznavour or, or even Bacharach and David. We started doing cover versions of, of, of just German songs and old vaudeville songs that we loved. And it was the start of my relationship with Morris as a, as a writing partner. The Blue Jays has lasted about six months. Like everything, it's not getting too popular. Um, they went, oh, let's do it on a Thursday and a Friday. And it says, no, no compromise. It's actually losing its vibe. We're stopping it. Bang. But it was then I started working with Morris and writing what became the first solo album, Each Man Gets the Thing He Loves. So that was around, I'd say, seven, 87, 88. And yeah, 87, 88. So it was very quick. And with that first album, each man kills a thing he loves. What was it like recording, uh, you know, your first solo album without the confines of the band? Was that like a less restriction? Well, there was no restrictions with the Virgin Prunes. Anything could go. And we were out of control. I mean, we brought in one producer for If I Die, I Die who put, who put control under us and gave us discipline, which is why If I Die, I Die sounds more tangible. Uh, the rest was freeform. Dave Ball produced the moon, looked down and laughed, and he put some rain on us, but he was a bit of a madman himself. So he sort of lost the rain too. But what happened with each man, I went for a producer that ended up being possibly one of the biggest influences of my life musically, a man called Hal Wilner, who passed away uh, in 2020 with, with, with COVID. Uh, he produced each man... And he introduced a pool of incredible avant-garde New York musicians. All the musicians on Each Man Kills are American, except for me and Morris. And they're like people that played with John Cale, Tom Waits, these like fuckers that like could, could play the most avant-garde or the most surreal pop. They hung out with Lou Reed. So it was just this epicenter of serious avant-garde and jazz and art musicians where the Virgin Prunes were DIY, make it up themselves, trash can art. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it, it, it really was another world. It was like suddenly 
the weirdest thing was I was saying earlier when I was listening to uh, punk and Bowie in the 70s, I thought you had to go to university. In a weird way, you have to. You have to fucking end up learning your bleeding trade. You have to flex your muscles. You do. And like in my, I was like in my early 30s, I was 29, 30, and I go, Jesus, I have a lot to learn. I have a huge amount to learn musically, uh, intellectually. And I learned so much through the virtual programs because it was like our art college. Like me and Googie were going to every art gallery in the world. When we were on tour in, in any city, we were in there hanging out. Seriously, we weren't hanging out in the pubs. And when I met Hal Wilner in New York and we did Each Man Kills, and Morris was such a, a learned, classically trained gent. I was surrounding myself with different things, which tips into my adventures in underscore and score for movies, because that was me going to college again. How did you get involved in writing music for movies? It started like film. You were saying you guys love music and film. Yeah. Um, you're a bit of a film buff and a music buff and that. I'm the same. I mean, I adore film. Um, if you look at my CD or album collections, I would say in the last 20 years, 25 years, 50% would be score albums, albums of soundtracks and that. I just adore score. Uh, Bernard Herrmann's my favourite I just adore him all the Hitchcock stuff and that but it was in 1991 I I knew Jim Sheridan from the punk days because in the late 70s uh, the Virgin Prunes couldn't get a gig anywhere like they wouldn't put us on because we had your pig's heads and muck and all drama and they're not getting them. Trinity College would give us gigs and the Project Arts Centre would always give us a gig. And Jim, ah, Jesus, ah, yeah, yeah, brilliant. You know, we do your shows. There. So Project Arts Centre became this home. So I knew Jim from the late 70s and I knew Mannix Flynn and all that crowd, that theatre crowd, and Nigel Rolfe and the performance art crowd. And in the early 90s, Jim had gone off with, with my left foot and we'd met him around. And uh, I mean, the pride when you see something like my left foot, like you, you, what he captured about Dublin and, you know, Brenda Fricker, I go, she's like me, ma. Yeah. And just that that guttural, that, that really breaks your heart, ma, that would kill for you. And I think all of us have memories like that. And uh, so we're all just in love with Jim. And after he made the field, I met him and he says, Jesus, Gav, I'm making the name of the father and it's driving me fucking mad. They don't get the violence and the music. Will you help me? It fucking, I want the bleeding bomb. I want the bomb and they fucking, they don't understand it. And you will, won't you? So he called me in. I don't know if that's a good gym. That's a brilliant gym. <laughs> and he called me in and he says, come on, will you be my musical uh, consultant? And it first started off really simply of like a riot scene. And he goes, what the fuck do we put? And I says, well, he's into Jimi Hendrix. Let's put Voodoo Child underneath it and see how it sounds. So it started off as this sort of artistic relationship. And then he just went, Gav, do me a favor. You and Morris, go in and make a bomb go off musically, will you? Make a fucking bomb, because I want to open the film with a bomb. But if you record it, then I'll film it. So uh, we went in and, and he was going, just think, 
what's the sound of a Catholic and what's the sound of a Protestant and what's the sound of a bomb? And I went, okay. So I went, rhythm, a baron versus a lambeg, right? And then I went, accordions, tin whistle, but let's put the accordions through fuzz boxes. So it's Irish, but through the fucking dream scheme of Jimi Hendrix. And we just bashed them together. We were recording this in in a, a small studio in Temple, Temple Bar, when Temple Bar was an incredible arts place before fucking Stan and he- Stag and Hens parties yeah, yeah. and bad hotels. It really was a little hub for painters and writers and musicians and STS and you two used to do all their demos there. And we were in a room, Bono went, the fuck is that? And he says, I said, it's, it's for Jim. And he says, Oh, I heard about this movie. I want to be in. And we finished the song. Uh, me and Bono wrote the lyric. We gave it to Jim and he went ballistic. He said, I'm shooting, I'm shooting the fucking start of the film, which is the start of the film you see in In the Name of the Father. Then it came to the end. He says, I need an end song. I need an end song. I want Bono to sing it. Or, or are you? And I says, oh, yeah, I'm sure you want fucking Bono. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like he's going for Oscar. <laughs> and uh, so the weird thing was we, we wrote, we had written most of Thief of Your Heart ourselves for uh, our album, me and Morris. And I sang a version. And I got Bono, sang a, me and Bono wrote the lyrics. And I just said, it's not right. And then Jim just says, no, it's not right. And he says, do you know why? And I says, because fucking Ireland's not a man. Ireland's a fucking woman. We need a woman singing it. And he says, Sinead, I'm afraid of her. You ask her. So it was like, <laughs> we. I rang her up. She saw rough at the movie. She says, whatever you want. Went in, she did it in fucking four hours and Thief of Your Heart. She's amazing. So quite, but this was a time, remember, what was quite emotional was it was very soon after the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six were released. I mean, I marched twice for, for, for civil rights. One was the X case. And was the the release of the Birmingham the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, and so the country was very passionate. It was pre peace treaty. Uh, the film was really, really meant an awful lot to ninety percent of this country. It was a fucking really amazing thing, and Jim, it it, it fucking went through the roof. I mean, Hollywood started ringing me and Morris up. Little did they know. <laughs> and uh and jim just says you can do it i want you to do the boxer i want you to do it just so a relationship happened where we did four movies with him the boxer uh in the name of the father the boxer in america and fucking the hip-hop one get rich or die <laughs> trying which was you know uh 50 cent that was a tough one that was yeah as well as your writing music for film, your songs have appeared in, in various movies over the years. Do you yeah. ever be sitting watching a film and hear yourself come on, or do you already know when one of your songs is being used? You usually do because you have you have they they have to contact the publisher 
and the publisher asks you and then they sign off. So usually you do. I mean, the biggest song we had in a movie was Angel uh, from Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann. And Angel was a song on Shack Tobacco. And the producer called Nellie Hooper came to see us live in Dublin. And he heard Angel and, and him and Baz Luhrmann, actually. They were in Dublin. They came, they heard Angel and said, that's in our movie. And they just came and says, can we take it and remix it? And it went on to that soundtrack. That was one of the last huge, big selling soundtracks. I think it sold about 30 million. Huge yeah, amount. Yeah. Uh, so there was sort of luck. It's like throwing the coin in the air. But on my last album, Catholic, uh, Sean Penn approached me. He was making that movie. This must be the place, a strange movie. In where, Ireland, yeah. In Ireland. In Ireland. Yeah. And played, that the one we had the big hair, that one, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a yeah like a retired uh, Robert Smith from The Cure or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he he heard Lord I'm Coming. He says, that has to close this movie. And just accidents happen. Uh, and you can pitch and send it out. But we didn't push that. That just sort of happened, songs going in and out. And it usually does. If a, if a record, I think the real truth is, to answer your question, really, because myself and Morris were working on our own albums, at the same time working on soundtrack and score and working with orchestras, we had a very cinematic sound and, we, and it had an orchestrated feel and still... So you, you go, oh, that's very cinematic. I can hear that in a movie. I could see that in a television show. So I think that's that's why the songs got on, because they have that otherness, if you know what I'm saying. I think I fell in love. You smile alone like a drunken drug has gone. Gavin, that album you, men, you mentioned there, Catholic, released in 2011, that was released on a Good Friday. Now, Ireland back then on Good Friday, absolutely nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Was that intentional? Absolutely. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm lying dead in state with a tripod <laughs> on me. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, if I ever have a best of, it's going to be called Good Friday, isn't it? That's so, the well, you know, <laughs> I mean, as I said, it's that it's it's more tongue in cheek. I'm not angry at the Catholic Church as I was when I was a kid, okay. but I'm not letting them away with it. Um, you know, well, Kevin, as well as writing performance songs for yourself and other people, uh, and writing music on screen. Uh, you appeared in movies such as Breakfast on Pluto and various stage works, including Shakespeare. Was acting something that always interested you? Performance did very much. And I don't know if you've ever seen me or the Virgin Prunes live. It is very visual yeah, and, and it has a theatrical slant. And yeah, it, it always interests me. I didn't, I'd say the most theatrical thing I did uh First up was in 2002, we did the Dublin Theatre Festival where I did a two-hour show based around Kurt Vile and Brecht's music. I called it a Klebedich, and it, it was quite theatrical. After, it was after that that Neil Jordan approached me. Now, I thought he was approaching me to do score, and he wanted me to act. And the maddest thing about Breakfast on Pluto is I know the writer, Pat McCabe, who wrote the infamous Butcher Boy, which is also a film by Neil yeah. Jordan. But if you look at, at the dedication on the book of Breakfast and Pluto, it's dedicated to Fanon and Rini, my ex-wife. And um, the pussy that's in in the movie, the character, the Killian Murphy character is called Kitten, but in the book it's called Pussy. And I had a song called Mr. Pussy. And there's a lot of Gavin Friday influences. And when I was 17, 12, 
I was into glam rock. And then suddenly in my mid to late 40s, I'm fucking playing a glam rock IRA gun runner that's picking up <laughs> this fucking transgender kid. Uh, it was so funny that like history repeating itself. Uh, because I knew all the reference points and I knew the book, I just went, fuck it, and just went for it. So I didn't overthink. I just went for it. Brilliant. That's what I have. Quite a, a raw performance from one me. One of my favorite uh, soundtracks. Brilliant. And a Shakespeare thing was also a musician, composer, a guy called Gavin Bryars, who's a he's a he wrote this beautiful thing. If you ever like sort of contemporary classical, he wrote a, a piece of music called "Jesus Blood Never Let Me Down." And it's 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 a it's a voice of a tramp singing this old religious song. Jesus blood never failed me yet, never failed me yet. Jesus blood never failed me yet. Da, da, da. But it has this ache, and he recorded it and looped it over an hour, and has an orchestra building and building and building. Well, he he did that piece in Dublin in the late 90s and i'd met him and we got on but he approached me about 2010 asking me to contribute some lyrics and vocals because he was doing something for shakespeare uh he was commissioned by her royal highness and the royal shakespearean company and i ended up working with the shakespearean company for three months once again it was like going back to school, I was learning about enunciation and and yeah, and I tour. You get no money, by the way, if you work with the Royal Shakespearean Company. It's almost like it looks great in your CV, yeah. but you get like eighty quid a week, and you're living in a shite hole. But it was like this other adventure. I, I, I think I like challenging myself and going something else that gets me somewhere else. It's yeah. not a plan. It, it, these things come in spontaneously and then they become a little bit of an obsession and then I go there and I do it for two or three years then I move on yeah. Gavin you know it's you see like we've seen Gabriel Bourne's one man show uh, I know Springsteen did one yeah. uh, Damien Damien Dempsey's doing one at the moment is that something you could do in the future yeah I did something in 2006 called I didn't come up the Liffey in a bubble and it was it was what my dad used to always say when we were kids. Um, it shows you the influence of the dad is subliminally. It's the, the love you didn't get becomes the love you need. Uh, and I did it based on a big photographs of here. I have this one a little blow up here beside it. It's people that influenced me. And this is like ma and da, right? Yeah. And they would come up and I, and different pictures right the way through to to like punk and bowie and jacques brel and kurt vile and shakespeare and i just spoke about my life through the pet drawings uh so but it wasn't that directed it wasn't like i, I did it quite quickly and i was in it was in the dublin theater festival i did it in a spiegel tent for two nights so i have the bones of a one-man show there eventually but now that every fucker's doing them from Bob <laughs> Demo, I think I'll take a break <laughs> yeah. and, and let them all yeah. calm down for a while. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I should tell you that the Virgin Bruins are also coming up. <laughs> I can't remember when, but when we were kids, we grew up in the same street. Then there was the Posh Brothers, and The Edge, and Dick, and Adam Clayton from the Clever Boys. And uh, we had all kinds of grandiose ideas and lived this totally surreal life in our imagination. And right back then, and the Gabby Friday said, well, wouldn't it be great if we all played Carnegie Hall? Gavin, we couldn't let pass without asking you about playing Carnegie Hall. How did that happen and who else was on the bill? Carnegie Hall was, weirdly enough, they have this thing, you, you ain't known you ain't known until you play Carnegie Hall. And 
I always love the grandeur of it. And I love, I mean, to me, I'm not interested in Crow Park or not even interested in Fairview Park. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give, give me the Olympias of the world. Mm. Give me the, the great halls, the great music halls where you can sit down, have a drink, see, hear, great. Not like I'm just too old for that now. Um, and I don't want it. You hear and see every bit. Um, Hal Wilner, the gent I told you, he he does a lot of work with, with Carnegie Hall. And it was coming up to my 50th. And Bono says, oh, uh, what are you doing for your 50th? I says, oh, I'm not going to do anything. Nothing. Maybe lo- maybe you go for dinner or a few heads. No, I know what you're doing. You're playing a gig. Uh, and it's going to be a charity gig. The money's going for uh, AIDS, for Red and One. But uh, Hal's putting it together. You and Hal are putting it together. I put the money down to rent out Carnegie Hall. And so we decided to do a retrospective of all the music and to pull on the people who I I knew and were into it and would do. So it ended up being all of you two played, but I wouldn't let you two play. I wanted them to make play separately with other people. So I wasn't going, I'm having you two. I'm having Adam. Bono, Edge, Larry, but they're playing with different musicians as well. We had all those incredible jazz musicians, like like I mentioned before. There's Bill Frizzell, be one of them. He's incredible. Uh, so there was like a ten piece band, but I became over the years in and out of living in America for a while friends with Lou Reed. So Lou Reed played his wife, his then wife Laurie Anderson. Uh, uh, Courtney Love, who's a good old friend. Uh, you want to see me and Courtney together on stage. It's quite a thing. Maria McKee, the infamous girl. Uh, incredible. Uh, Rufus Wainwright, Mar- uh, his sister, Martha Wainwright, Lydia Lunch, Shane McGowan, Googie, Jim Tyrwell. And the maddest thing was one of my first introductions to you know, I was saying as into Jacques Brel and Kurt Vile and all that. I believe as a kid, your instinct, your antenna is telling you what you're into, even though you don't understand it. Like you can read books. I remember buying Burroughs and shit when I was 15. I hadn't a clue what it was about. I under it when I was 25. I was buying it because Bowie talked about it. But there was a film called Cabaret with Liza Minnelli that came out and I loved it. And I didn't understand why I loved it so much. Now it's a great musical, but that is like the music of Kurt Vile and all that. And Hal knew this, that I love that film so much. So the actual guy, Joel Gray, who's about 90 now, who does the MC, Madam M, he, is, he comes on and does his whole piece in the second half of the show, which is my favorite bit of the whole thing. Wow. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and 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 also that incredible singer, uh, the transgender singer Anoni from Anthony and the Johnsons. Oh, yeah, uh, we did duets together. So it was quite, but it was quite spontaneous again. Like how just says, you know, in New York, it's Gavis' birthday. Do you want to come down? We're rehearsing Tuesday. The show's Thursday. Yeah, we're there. It wow. wasn't like some big corporate thing. It was quite loose and crazy. Gavin, I'm listening to Bono's book at the moment. I've just started. I'm listening to an audiobook, and you get a fair mention now in the start. Um, yeah. How, how how have you remained so close seeing that he's like superstar? Well, he's a superstar, but to me, because we grew up together and because we went on the same journey, even though it was a different journey, uh, I remember when you two went over to America really early, like 1980. And they, they're the hardest working men I've ever met. Still are. Like, he, he's a powerhouse of work. 
he doesn't fucking stop. And when he's free from music, he's working on on other stuff. You know, that's usually uh, human rights and other stuff. But when we 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 were nonstop working the Virgin Prunes, we toured so much. Like the Virgin Prunes in the early eighties were playing to like we could play France for a week and a half, eight gigs, and we'd have two or three thousand at a show. And no one knew this, only people in France. But when you'd come back home after this six, seven months, eight months tour, you, you you lost track of your old school friends. And the only people we fucking knew was you two. And the only people they knew was the Virgin Fruits. So the relationship cl- clicked. And then it was real friendship. You know, we, we, we'd go drinking together. We'd go, you know, when he had loads of money. And he goes, here, I have a gaff over in France. Come over for the week, you and Gugs, and we'll have a laugh. So the friendship was always like blood brothers. But the real reason, I believe, is because we love our work. And I'm his biggest critic, and he's my biggest critic, and I'm one of his fans. So we don't blow smoke up each other's arse. And and it's sort of a... I believe that men's relationships are... are, are, are when it's work... And when it's work that's expressive and, and and there's a lot of pride in it, it becomes a very strong bond when you're working on something. Like, you know, I've seen uh, a brother of mine and, and, and they fix cars and him and his mate fix. And it's like this is fucking everything, fixing this antique car. And I think there's that bond with that when Bono's on a project, like even his book I helped him with there with visual. It's like we just we do what we did when we were 16 or 17. He'd say, listen, I think we have a new song. And I says, that's shite. The chorus isn't good enough and the title's crap. And he'd go, what do you think of this fucking title, you bollocks? <laughs> and that's very basic in Northside 16-year-olds. Turn that into a sophisticated thing. That bond is sort of the same, if that makes sense. It's, a be- it's beautiful. Sense. Yeah. What what's next for Gavin Friday? I've just put to bed uh, an album, a Gavin Friday album. It's been eleven years since Catholic. Uh, I started this about seven years ago. I put it on the shelf for three years. When my mum got very sick and died of Alzheimer's, and that took me out of everything for a bit to look after and that, and then fucking I was starting to mix it, and fucking lockdown <laughs> happened. And I said, I'm not cooking a cake till I know this lockdown is gone or this pandemic. So I started at it again late last year and I just mixed it last week. And I'm letting it sit for about a month. And you do a thing called tweaks, louder vocals, this, that. Down. And then I'll master it. And hopefully it'll be out late this year. And then I want to start touring next year. Brilliant. So will, will you let will you let Bono have a listen to some of the tracks and see if he says that's fucking shit or change that or change the title? Sometimes I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has he has heard he has heard a lot of it, and he like and I I I, I would listen to him, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then sometimes you know, well, that's a bit against the grain. So I want it that way. Um, yeah, no. Uh, he hasn't heard the final mix, but no one has till I do me tweaks, and then that'll be there. Also, there's another project in amongst the the quietness of lockdown that I was quietly working on, and that's 20 years ago. I, I myself and Morris did a version of Peter and the Wolf, and Bono did the drawings, and it was always people's idea to animate it. Well, it's been finished. It's been finished in the next month as a 30 minute movie. Wow. Movie. Uh, we had to re record the voice. So I've just done new vocals with all the characters. And that's coming out late this year as well. And where we see that, Gavin, do you know? Has anybody picked it up? Yeah, HBO have. Brilliant. Brilliant. So it's got to be big. <laughs> yeah. are, are you going to have an official screening in Dublin? Yeah, we'll have a premiere in Dublin. We're, we're keeping it. It was originally made as a charity thing for Irish hospice, and we're giving all the profits to the hospice again. Fantastic. 
we've got Fantastic. a charity thing, but it's very beautiful. We it's it's all about sort of loss and grief, but through a child's fairy tale, the old fairy tale, and we've changed the fairy tale a bit because the world is now a woke world, and wolves cannot be killed or go to or go to zoos. So if you know what I'm saying, so it's it's a few things, but it's. April is the deadline, so right in the middle of that. But I'm Brilliant. very proud of it, and it's 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 got that sort of. I love the fact that it's classical music, so it's it's sort of educating kids. But it has a bit of punk rock about it. The cartoons are black and white and punky, so we'll see. And I'm the narrator; I do all the voices. So fantastic! Can't wait yeah. to see it. Yeah, so that's that's this year then. My own album and that, yeah, great. Gavin Friday, we, we we could talk to you all night, right? Because obviously know, you're a, a natural uh, talker, raconteur. But we uh, question that we finish our interviews with Gavin, and the question mm-hmm. is: It's last orders at the bar, last orders at the last chance saloon. You have a euro in your pocket, and there's a jukebox in the corner. What's the last song Gavin Friday wants to hear? There's one of my favorite songs of all time, and it has been for a long while. It's a song by an old jazz pop singer, an American lady called Peggy Lee, uh, who had many hits in the 60s and the 50s. But in the 70s, she made an album with the great writers Lieber and Stoller, who wrote for Elvis and everybody. They wrote, they wrote Jailhouse Rock. Yeah. They, they wrote an album inspired, believe it or not, by Kurt Vile and Brecht called Mirrors. And it's a very rare album. You should Google it and find it. It's fucking amazing. Okay. And the lead song and the big hit from it was a song called is that all there is and i think everybody when they hear it knows it and it's just it's just one of those songs that when the whole world whether it's blows up or everything goes wrong you put your feet on you put that up you get a gin and tonic a cigarette and you go fuck it life is great is that all there is well gavin that's the song we're going to play this interview on we are we were delighted to get you on we really really were thank you from, from kieran from yourself from mark our editor from the whole electricity take a team gavin friday thank you very much thank you gentlemen take care is that all there is is that all there is if that's all there is my friends then let's keep dancing Break out the booze and have a ball If that's all 